Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Our main topic today will be digital therapeutics, but before that, a few thoughts on the coronavirus pandemic. Unusual is the word I would use to describe the current times we live in. Self-isolation has effects on how we work, how we interact with our friends and family. Online shopping and deliveries are becoming a new normal, which is exactly why analysts of New York Times predict that big tech will profit most from the current crisis, as consumers will adopt new online-to-offline habits, which might just stick with them after the pandemic ends. One of the challenges in these times is getting reliable and accurate information about COVID-19. To curb the problem, the World Health Organization launched a dedicated messaging service in Arabic, English, French and Spanish with partners WhatsApp and Facebook. WHO also opened an account on TikTok to spread relevant coronavirus-related information as broadly as possible. See the show notes for the links. Also, in collaboration with the White House and Center for Disease Control in the US, Apple launched a special COVID-19 screening tool. I link that in the show notes as well. As I mentioned in the previous episode, telemedicine news is spiking and more limelight might fall on digital therapeutics as well. As written by the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, digital therapeutics have immense potential in the coronavirus pandemic as patients can access and utilize digital therapeutics and improve their health outcomes, which consequently reduces chronic disease-related hospitalizations. The use of digital therapeutics can mitigate additional pressure on healthcare providers during the outbreak and could reduce vulnerable populations' potential coronavirus virus exposure. See more on the Digital Therapeutics Alliance website where they listed various available solutions. If you've never heard about Digital Therapeutics before, this show is just what you need to hear. I spoke with Jessica Schul, European lead for the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. Jessica is also manager of clinical trials and big data projects for respiratory disease at Belvich Hospital in Barcelona. In essence, DTX are clinically validated digital solutions with proven positive effects on disease management and outcomes. You will hear Jessica explain how clinical trials for drugs differ from clinical trials for digital therapeutics. She also explained what the digital therapeutics are and how they should be differentiated from digital diagnostics and more. Enjoy the discussion. Find the recap of the episode on our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. And may I just mention that this episode is only the first part of a series about digital therapeutics. You will be able to hear about the relationship between DTX and the pharma industry in the upcoming episodes. I will also present a few digital therapeutic solutions to give you a better understanding of what they are. So do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. But now, to DTX Basics with Jessica.
Jessica, you are completing your PhD in biomedicine. You worked in a virtual surgery company, mentored startups, and your specialty is patient-focused product evolution. Just for the beginning, how and when did you get into digital therapeutics? I've been in digital health since 2002, so quite a long time considering the evolution of the industry. And I started as actually a medical illustrator, which uh, seems very antiquated because my idea was, of course, to draw anatomy and surgery. And I was very interested in how the human body works and explaining that through drawing. So I did a master's in the U.S. at a medical school. So I had, you know, the cadavers. I did the dissection. We had to draw what we dissected and actually do the first two years of medical school, actually. So that was um, my introduction, but because it was, you know, the beginning of, you know, the 2000s, things were going digital. And even in that sector, they understood that um, if you didn't have digital uh, capabilities, that the industry would go under. And so we learned all about 3D modeling and animation and all kinds of uh, digital tools. And I got my first job out of that graduate program uh, in Washington, D.C., designing virtual surgery devices. I was on the graphics end, but, but that required liaising and being able to communicate with trauma surgeons and nurses and anyone who had input and sort of user feedback for this industry. And it was really informative because it was my first introduction to the really disparate and, and well, parts of a project like this and disparate, but they needed to be cohesive in the end. So the programmers needed to agree with the physicians on what color the drapery was and how to make it look real. So it was really, yeah, it was really informative, um, but it was high tech and really expensive. You know, we had millions in funding, that kind of thing. And I didn't feel like it was very scalable. And my interest was to go more global. And so I went from there to Italy and did a master's in more uh, public health. And so it was a focus on how to rebuild uh, health workforces in countries where there had been a civil war or discontent. <laughs> but I focused on Rwanda and uh, Kosovo. And through that, started working at WHO um, on what was then called e-health for those health systems. So it's been, for me, a gradual evolution through the sector and, you know, from 2006 when I started at WHO, eHealth turned into mHealth in around 2008 or 9 because mobile phones became smart and much more connected and usable for health interventions and you know, SMS became a thing that was used, you know, for neonatal care, that kind of thing, like more globally, actually. Well, and so from there, yeah e-health became m-health, m-health became digital health around 2014. And I began with the Digital Therapeutics Alliance in 2017 as a strategic advisor. And so in 2018, I became an advisor. 2019, I started on as the European lead. So I've been, I've been in Barcelona after WHO. I came to Barcelona to do a PhD and yeah, have been in digital health here at a hospital actually in Barcelona, working on digital health projects there and with the Alliance. So yeah, I've been immersed, you know, for some time. 
you talked a lot about the evolution of healthcare going from paper to searching how digital solutions could be useful. But where do digital therapeutics come into play? So because uh, in theory, the first discussions or mentions of digital therapeutics actually go all the way to 2010. And the media kind of picked up on DTX more recently in, let's say, perhaps the last two, three years. So can you just take us through the development of DTX in the last 10 years? What were the milestones? Are solutions that were previously not defined as digital therapeutics now defined as digital therapeutics? Yeah, I think it's a good question because as digital health has evolved in general, I mean, part of our work has been to define and structure the industry because, as you say, in 2010, digital therapeutics companies were working and they were producing interventions, but it wasn't until more recently that there was a structure and a definition as to what these products are and the evidence that they require to be regulated properly. And and so I think in 2010, you know, there was this realization that not only could an intervention happen just by communication, but the actual software itself could be the intervention. And so uh, the companies that were working on this, I think, were, you know, were doing groundbreaking work. And it took, you know, a lot of their innovation and pioneering to get us where we are now. So I think the term sort of became coined and more recognized in, you know, starting in 2017. And I'm not sure what it was called in 2010, because we were still calling it digital health. But yeah, I think that as the evidence became clearer and clearer, you know, by, by 2012, 2014, it was obvious and there were studies being done that, you know, just this software was actually having an impact on diseases. The most talked digital solutions defined as DTX target conditions such as ADHD, obesity, anxiety, depression. And uh, according to my knowledge, the difference between DTX and a wellness app is that DTX efficacy is supported by clinical trials. Can you name a few vivid examples of such clinical trials and their outcomes? And if I got the definition between just regular apps and DTX, right? Well, first, just to go back to what you said about these digital therapeutic interventions being the most talked about, it could be that they're the most uh, recognized because it's easier to explain a cognitive behavioral therapy via digital therapeutics than it is to explain how cancer therapy is also a DTX. So to add to that, obviously DTX covers much more than these mental health conditions that you mentioned. It, you know, there's, like I mentioned, cancer, there's diabetes, there's multiple sclerosis, there's, you know, a whole list of disease areas that digital therapeutics do address. What kind of things are designed for a cancer as DTX? Okay, I can give you two examples for cancer. One is actually... I, one of our newer members, um, it's a company called Kaiku. They're from Helsinki and they're working on, they have been working on a platform for all cancer interventions since 2012. So they have a wealth of data and clinical evidence and patient outcomes to show that when a patient is going through these therapies and they target, you know, the therapy and then the process and, and the way that the physician works with the patient, but they can actually demonstrate that when the patient can record their adverse effects and how they're feeling during the day and how they're relating you know, to the treatment, the input is more accurate and the physician can actually better tailor the treatment to that person. And so you know, they will see a patient one, once a month or once every three months 
but the patient has this interaction every day. And with this DTX, the patient outcomes are better. And they've actually done trials to demonstrate that patient outcomes, they can actually increase patient life expectancy by five months and the quality of life is actually increased. And so for me, I mean, that's, that's a huge indicator of, of the impact of a DTX. Well, that's, that's one. And the other one is a company called Tired of Cancer. And they have a product which addresses also the sort of mental state and the exhaustion that patients, you know, have when, when they're going through cancer therapy. And they've also been able to demonstrate that using this DTX, it addresses the side effects. You know, it's not a direct DTX for the cancer itself, but because of, of these side effects and, and the exhaustion being addressed, they actually have better outcomes because it's been shown that if a patient is depressed, like for many diseases, the treatments are just not as effective. In the previous example, you mentioned clinical evidence and clinical trials. What is meant by that when it comes to DTX? What counts as clinical evidence? What are the rules? Because when it comes to drugs, the rules are extremely, extremely strict and, you know, there's numbers of people that need to be involved in a trial and that's usually quite large numbers. So how is that in this field? So it's very similar. DTX is special in, in the sense that it is regulated. There are very structured regulatory requirements and even though it's not a molecular asset, you do have to demonstrate for each DTX product safety and efficacy. And so clinical trials are most often randomized clinical trials. So this is following a drug model. And so dozens of publications now um, with DTX you know, clinical trials being published, for instance, in, in JAMA, the, the Journal of the American Medical Association, in the Journal of Medical Informatics Research, in the Lancet. I mean, these are all medical journals. So it, it's very parallel to what the drug industry has, has done. And that's in fact, why the DTA maintains that that's the level of evidence that DTX companies should should aim for because it's respected, it's understood. And I have to say, been a part of a clinical trial myself, they aren't infallible. Like th there can be mistakes made when patients record data. There can be mistakes made when the CRO uploads data. And so I think there's actually a lot of room for the drug industry to improve the way clinical trials are run. And I think because digital therapeutics are digital, there's an opportunity for the two to work together to improve the way trials are, are designed. What kind of uh, trial were you a part of, if it's not a two-personal question? Was it more from the research side or just a, an actual participant in the trial? No, I was running a trial. So I work at a hospital in Barcelona, and we are actually still in the middle of this trial, so I can't really talk about the details, but it was sponsored by a pharma company, and it's a phase four randomized clinical trial with over 95 participants in six countries looking at idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and the side effects and after effects according to diet. So I'll leave it at that, but... You know, it's been very informative for me because it's you know, the first trial I've been a part of, just you know, organi organizing and, and taking care of the, uh, yeah, very intense um, bureaucracy involved in it. But um, it, it's interesting you know, to see how it actually all works. And it was, it's been going on for more than two years. And so I understand how recruitment happens, how you have dropouts, how, you know, the whole process is very complex and expensive and, yeah, requires... Planning. That's exactly why I began with this question about clinical trials in digital therapeutics, because one of the 
pain points of digital health is that the hopes in the beginning were that these solutions could improve healthcare and health of individuals faster. But now if, for example, DTX are going through clinical trials, you know, there's this question, are these trials any shorter? Because drugs do have many phases, as you mentioned yourself, they take years to complete. And if this would happen with digital solutions, it would mean that there's a certain level of disappointment because things can't be done faster with digital. I think it's difficult for uh, digital therapeutics companies, um, as it is for anyone, to run a trial. But because they are not pharma companies, they don't have the infrastructure that a pharma company does to set up a trial. And so I don't think there's any way to do a shortcut right now. But I think perhaps some digital companies... Um, digital therapeutics companies may have an easier time recruiting just because they may already have a user base. Whereas, you know, for many clinical trials for pharma, you have to recruit from zero. No, for now, I mean, they're, they're following the same standards. And so I think there is room, though, to improve for both sides. I mean, I think it, it's one and the same. If digital therapeutics companies and digital therapeutics trials can be improved, it, it goes the same for pharma. One thing that is important to differentiate is digital therapeutics versus digital diagnostics. So I wanted to ask you a question about the Apple Watch, which has an FDA approval for its ECG app. And in 2019, a clinical trial was conducted and the results showed that uh, the watch was effective in detecting AFib, um, stating that 84% of the smartwatch notifications were accurate in alerting for AFib. However, there's this discussion now that the small print of the uh, provider, so Apple, says that uh, AFib can't be detected if the heart rate is above 120 beats per minute. And according to Mayo uh, Clinic, AFib typically has a heart rate of 100 to 175 beats per minute. So, you know, this opens up this huge question of whether or not this is then a useful thing at all, or if it can be misleading for consumers. So I don't know, there's a range of questions here. What's your opinion? How are you following all these discussions from the DTX um, uh, expertise and DTA Alliance point of view? Just to say digital therapeutics are not diagnostics. So that's important in our definition of the industry. So, of course, diagnostics are important and they they can be very innovative and they are digital, but because digital therapeutics are specifically treatments, we don't include diagnostics for now in that definition. So the Apple Watch study, yeah, I've read about it and I think it's fantastic that something, you know, so small and available to, to the consumer can be a diagnostic um, for people who are interested in that. I don't know how that will change the healthcare industry in general, just because, you know, diagnostics are one thing. And then I don't know what Apple is doing to say, okay, if someone finds out that they are AFib or that they are, you know, in, in potential, uh, a candidate for, you know, the, you know, this, this, um, sort of dangerous situation, um, what, what, what do you do then? Like, I don't know what the follow up is for that. So, I mean, for, for us, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, for me personally, you know, I, I try to, you know, stay informed about these things. And it's 
interesting to me too, because I, I see a lot of diagnostics perhaps could lead to someone you know, either seeking treatment or monitoring their own condition um, through the diagnostic, but I don't, it's not a digital therapeutic, but it, I think it has great potential, I mean, on its own industry. So there might be a digital diagnostics alliance very soon. We work with the Digital Medicine Society, and that's a group that looks at uh, diagnostics and, you know, all these uh, monitoring and patient devices, which are not therapeutics. If we go back to digital therapeutics, um, what are the trends in uh, reimbursement? So are software applications available direct to consumers? Do they need to be prescribed by a doctor? I know that some are prescribed. There's big changes happening in Germany regarding what's going to be reimbursed. So, yeah, there is a lot of movement on the reimbursement side um, in the U.S. and in Europe. So this is a question that you know we get a lot just because there is no one answer in terms of what works and, and what will be the, the final framework for reimbursement. But, you know, everything has its place. And so there are, yes, over-the-counter digital therapeutics, and they are in existence and being used in many, many countries, the U.S., all over Europe and South Korea. There are also employment plans, you know, so an employer or a private health insurance company can bring on a digital therapeutic product and then give it to everyone, you know, in that's part of that plan. And there are prescription therapeutics, digital therapeutics. So all of these modalities are currently in use. And for the prescribed digital therapeutics, that's where we're seeing the most movement in Europe. For, as you say, uh, Germany has just passed this law, and we're actually in contact with and engaged with the German government body, which is implementing this law to make sure that we're aware of the requirements for digital health products that are to be approved and used under this law. And it's interesting because you know, Germany took this big step to create a national plan and they didn't have a framework for this prior. Most digital therapeutics in Germany that had been used prior to this were under private insurance. So yeah, we're following that closely and also trying to engage with physicians in Germany and physician groups and the ecosystem you know, in, in Berlin and, and further afield to ensure that not only is the law understood, but that physicians themselves understand the importance of the digital therapeutic for their patients. Because I think it's kind of that last mile that people aren't fully aware of the benefits of DTX and how potentially you know, this could help them in their practice and, and hopefully would not impact on their time. So there's, there's probably a learning curve like across the ecosystem at that last mile. But yeah, that has great potential in Germany. What are the feedbacks that you're currently getting from the physicians you're reaching out to raise awareness? Well, at the moment, the people who I'm in touch with in Germany are digitally aware. And so it's a bit unfair because, of course, they are great supporters of DTX and support the law. But I think the great majority of physicians in Germany, at least I've been told by German physicians and people who know in Germany, that most physicians aren't, you know, digitally savvy and they don't really care about digital innovation because they're not convinced that it's going to help them and they 
don't want to have this learning curve. And many still use fax machines. You know, we're talking about, you know, this has been the way it is, you know, for, for a long time. And so I think that's changing slowly. And we're actually holding a stakeholder group meeting in Berlin at the end of April to draw together the positions who are not digitally savvy and to say, well, if you're not aware of what these things are, these DTX products, we're happy to give you a course on what they are and why they're important and how your patients can benefit. And so we're trying to present DTX in a way that is not, oh, this new great thing, but no, but how this actually fits into their workflow and how it can help, you know, Frau Schmidt, who came to their office yesterday and has diabetes, you know, make it a very evident and tangible kind of approach. Yeah, I think there's still many open questions and unknowns when it comes to DDX, you know, so you, you really need to take time to understand them, which is probably the reason, as you said, why to a certain extent doctors are going to wait before using them on a wider scale. Another question that came to my mind when I was preparing for this interview was that if digital therapeutics follow the same rules than chemical compounds or biological therapies, do they also have negative side effects? How much is known about that? So well, just to back up a little bit, so DTX do run clinical trials in the same way that you know you would for a molecular asset but they're not regulated in the same way. So because they are under MDR in the EU, you know, there are regulations with notified bodies for being CE marked and so forth. And then, you know, each country has their own uh, health technology assessment process. So that's just to clarify that. But um, yes, uh, we're aware that there may be uh, side effects and adverse events due to a DTX. And that's something that we're trying to work out with the individual companies, but also looking at the real world evidence and how that can be documented. And so far, I don't know personally of any negative side effect just because, you know, it's all fairly new and the evidence hasn't been presented to me. But yeah, we're aware. And and so there's also the idea, you know, because our executive director is a pharmacist and, sh and she's working with the U.S. Pharmacopoeia to say, okay, not only may there be uh, negative side effects, but there also may be necessary to look at the DTX on DTX interactions. So, yeah, it's in that sense, it's very much looking at DTX as a drug. Right. I know that gaming can be addictive, you know, so if DTX are designed through virtual reality scenes or games, that's where my question came from. Like, can that be addictive? Yeah, and I, I don't have an answer for that right now. Um, I suppose it's possible. And I wonder too, like for the gaming industry, have they done studies to say whether the games are addictive? Like I don't, even, I don't even know about that kind of research. And so it's worth looking into. And we realize that there's that possibility. And I guess the difference though is that oftentimes, and I can't say for sure that it's 100%, but usually uh, DTX has indicated use. And so there could be, for instance, it's a you know 12-week program after which you are done, you are evaluated, and perhaps you know there's, there's a requirement to continue, but it's not sort of a wide open-ended game like you might find with, you know, the online games. 
You mentioned two examples in the beginning uh, of DTX, but still to kind of give us a more plastic example of uh, what DTX are and how they look like. Can you think of an example that illustrates how DTX enhance the patient experience and improve the quality of life? Yeah, I think it's it's best to use a DTX to actually see. Yeah, I guess the two examples I gave you for uh, the cancer DTX, that's obviously, that's a fairly obvious improvement in quality of life, um, just not to be affected by the treatment so heavily. There's also, for instance, pain management, chronic pain DTX. And actually, I use a DTX myself. I use chronic lower back pain uh, DTX from Kaya because I do have chronic lower back pain. And I think a lot of people do. I think it's something like one out of every five people in the world or something. But yeah, it's something that it's engaging and it's every day you feel like there's someone actually paying attention to your needs and your pain and you can you know, adjust the indicators and talk to a coach. And so it's generally like it's attention. It's that you feel taken care of. You are involved in DTX Alliance. Can you tell me a little bit more about what are the current successes? What are the plans for the future? What do the members of the Alliance um, get? What's the benefit of being a part of it? <laughs> so, so yeah, we're an alliance which is global. And even though the headquarters are in the US, like I'm based in Barcelona and we do work with members from South Korea, from Australia, and now Japan. And so, yeah, we involve everyone in discussions of the industry. And because we're a, a trade organization, basically, um, we want the industry to flourish and flourish in a way that is structured and logical. So we're very much trying to structure the industry, which has been prior to uh, these sort of definitions and regulations. It's been kind of a wild west, you know, but people keep pointing out to me that, oh, there are 300,000 health apps. And I say, yes, there are, but less than 1% of those are DTX because they don't follow the requirements for being a medical grade device. So a lot of our work in the first you know years was just that kind of structuring. And now the plans for the future, it's uh, we, we're growing membership little by little. I mean, the requirements for being a member are not, it's not easy um, because companies must demonstrate that they are actually adhering to our 10 principles of DTX product. Um, and all that's on our website if our listeners are interested. And so in the next year, year and a half, we have a lot of um, policy work going on to have DTX products recognized by government. And um, that's the case in the US, in the UK, in Germany, like all the countries uh, where we're working. And I think that's important for not only the reimbursement aspect of it and having, you know, national plans to pay for these kinds of interventions, but also for patients. I mean, health care systems, especially in Europe, are so overburdened. And so we see DTX as one way to reach more patients more frequently and more effectively for these healthcare systems. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Stay tuned and stay healthy. To find out more, search through topics or subscribe by going to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Also, if you like the show, do leave a rating or a review, even if it's just a word or a sentence, wherever you listen to your podcast. Any opinion and suggestion is the fuel for the show. <laughs>